welcome to We Are Architecture, an original podcast created by the American Institute of Architecture Students Chapter at Penn State. Created to showcase the minds of people that inspire us, and hopefully they will inspire you too. Welcome everyone, thanks for listening to the very first episode of We Are Architecture, the podcast created by architecture students in the AIAS Chapter in Penn State. I'm your host, Kiera, and today I have the pleasure of introducing you to Vinayka Rousseau-Toykoc. Currently, she's an assistant professor of architecture here at Penn State. She completed her research and doctoral studies at Istanbul Technical University in architectural design computer programming, focusing on how material manipulation in design can work hand-in-hand with computational design and its process. She received the best PhD dissertation award from Istanbul Technical University for her work. After this, she taught first-year design studios as well as design computer and geometry courses as a faculty member in architecture at Istanbul Bilkil University, as well as teaching workshops in universities in Turkey. Now, she forms part of our great faculty member and is also the founder for Format Lab, Form and Matter, which is the focus of today's talk. Thank you so much for collaborating with us for this project. I'm really excited to hear more about the project in general and your research and recent work. Okay, thank you for, you know, uh, inviting me for this talk. Yes, of course. So for the first question is, Format Labs uh, focuses on design and material computation and how all of this integrates with our design process. Mm -hmm. So for those that are not familiar with these terms of computation, design modification, what is computational making and material computation? Okay. That's a great question, actually. So um, the way that we approach design computing in our lab and with my students and also myself is not necessarily to the use of computers, but it's through an understanding of the design process from like as a reasoning process. So approaching it systematically, analytically, trying to understand the components of the process and you know, uh, cause and effect relationships between what's going on. So what material computation is, at least also in the way that we use it in the lab, is material is at the center and then there are multiple uncertain there are uncertainties about how they behave. Okay. So to be able to understand and have control over these uncertainties, we try to understand, you know, uh, we identify the parameters of uh, that affect the outcome and work through those parameters systematically by changing one at a time to understand how those emergent behaviors happen and you know what are the parameters that are directly affecting those param- that those behaviors mm-hmm. so um, we call this material computation and once you understand those then those kinds of like that information can be used uh, to simulate Um, that behavior in the computer in advance before the fabrication process. Or you can embed those information to your computational design processes. Computational making, on the other hand, so I I always write these as two things. So like material computation and computational making, they sound as if they're inverse of each other. But computational making is, there are also making processes, like some hands-on making processes that are that you know uh, that also bear incorpor- inco- incorporate some uncertainties. For instance, like a weaving process, that form like um, or a basket weaving process. Think of a basket weaving process. The form emerges through that act of weaving, 
right? And you, it's very sometimes difficult to design it in advance, but there are like certain steps or certain actions that you take in a series that emerges, that creates that emergent form. So these kinds of processes in which the material, the, in, the form emerges through that making process can also be computed. And when I say computed, it does not mean, again, with the use of computers, but the understanding of, you know, what kind of actions result in what kind of forms. So trying to understand the underlying rules behind it and formalize it with, like, um, represent it maybe as rules that you can communicate with others too. So you can teach it, so you can, like, maybe generate some emergent forms or generate things in... Um, create like an understanding around it that you can share and you can also first understand yourself, you know, what's going on here. Yeah, so I think those in one maybe material computation, the material behavior, like those things related to the material is at the core and maybe in the computational making, I would say, it's the making process that creates, again, they're, they're, they're interlinked, but it's the making process that creates um, the emergence in uh, formal emergence. Yeah, that's interesting because I we always relate computing to the technological tool, but now I, I see that there's a clear relationship between parameters, rules, and the making process, like mm -hmm. a step by step. Mm -hmm. So in all of this, it's not as much of theory as in it is practice and learning as you do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Like, of uh, this is it's about a way of thinking of, of the process. And it's not, like I said, it's not necessarily using parametric tools. It's not necessarily using high-end computing tools. It's about how you approach the process, trying to understand what's going on there and how you can, you know, put put them in sort of, like represent them as rules so you can first understand yourself and communicate with others and then use those to generate stuff, to generate new things, to generate new forms. Yeah, that's uh, what basically... I'm doing with my students, I'm doing, I did in my past research and current research, um, but of course we're using computer tools too. But I think the definition of design computing, which is what we usually think about, is uh, with, and we usually relate with computers, right. can be challenged and it's not um, just that, let me put it that way. And if you take computers from design computing, that becomes something approachable to even first-year undergrad students. Like you can teach them to think that way, to approach the processes that way. And um, you know, then once you understand that way of thinking, then yeah, you can also use computers to do that. But first, it's that thinking that you need to um, that you you. This it's, I think it's the first thinking that needs to be taught before the computers. So this thinking and process of idealizing how you make stuff, how do you think this works as a tool for us as students and future architects, either in research or in practice or any endeavor that we want to do? Do you think it like breaks through how we think about stuff and makes us create differently? Yeah. Great question. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I think, you know, um, like the way that maybe we can also, let me go back to the like, Renaissance in which but, but there was like, it's in the Renaissance that we started seeing these divisions between mind and body, 
okay? Like they were the mind is or is the st- detached the, was was thought to be detached from the body, and you know, uh, it was the mind that was idealized. So that also had its. I mean, maybe I shouldn't go too much into that detail, but also with the you know use of some drawing technologies of that time, like perspective, perspectival representation. The architects were started to be able to represent their design ideas in paper so that they didn't necessarily have to work with materials and show things with actually on site. So that kind of started to detach, to detach architects from the site and from the making processes, from the materials, from that kind of exploration. An architect became this like um, like design became that um, this design be- started to become uh, distant from manual labor and more thought as a like an intellectual labor. Okay, that is I think still valid today. And even when we with the maybe more recently in the past twenty years or so, with the use of digital fabrication technologies. People like these kinds of making practices start to reappear in the design process. But I think that even uh, in some of these processes in which we now fabricate things and make things, making is not necessarily at the center still. Because, you know, if you think of the digital, digital design or digital fabrication process, you fabricate the, the, the model or the tool or you create the cut sheets or you create the files in the computer before the fabrication. Mm-hmm. So again, maybe that process ends in the computer on a screen in an abstract medium. And then you take it to the fabrication machine for, mater- for materialization, right? So that disconnection between that design and the making is still there, even though we're fabricating things. So... Um, I mean, this is not, I know this is not the answer of your question. I took it to a different direction, but I'll tie it. So uh, what we challenge, what I challenge in some of my classes and with my students in the research is to use also these digital fabrication technologies as design tools so that it's not file to factory or file to an object, but there are things that, that can emerge in the use of those tools too. Like maybe the CNC milling machine the drill bit that you're using will leave some traces on the surface that you cannot model in the computer that emerges through that process. Or when you print clay with clay, for instance, a 3D print with clay, those textures on the surface are not modeled in the computer, but that have that emerge during the printing process. So even those things can be challenged. So coming back to that distinction between design and making, I think that's also embedded in our um, education and the way we train architects like we don't like if you think of a studio curriculum um, yes we do make models but most of the time those models are for representational purposes like we design the buildings on paper or by sketching or in computers by 3d modeling and then we make the models to represent physically that idea but it's not through the making process or it's not through the that uh, physical interaction with the materials that we design typically of course there are exceptions so i think this way of thinking through materials and through material experimentation is a different paradigm because there are things that that a material can tell you that you cannot even you cannot think about otherwise right or there are um like things that that happen in the material level that are very difficult to represent in the computers to 3d model or even through sketching and um, so these, this is 
this is like a different way of thinking about the design process, I think. And I mean, of course, it challenges like the whole idea of what design is. Um, but I like as much as I can, I try to, and when and whenever I can squeeze that in the curriculum, studio curriculum, I'm trying to uh, make the students think in this way. And relating this back to your first question about what computing, computational making, and material computation is, there could be many things that emerge in your relationship with the material, right? But when you don't think of what's happening there in a systematic analytical way, it's very difficult sometimes to repeat them, right? But when we think about designing, it's not just random things happening. You need you need to be able to have control over it so you can then maybe repeat it, but also repeat it maybe with variations. So that's the way I approach those uncertainties um, to be able to work with them, to be able to design with them and not just like random things happening in the material level that I don't know how that happens. Okay, does this help? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And also all of these like variables that you mentioned that might intervene with how the material reacts Mm -hmm. and you learn, it relates or reminds me of the parameters that you mentioned at the beginning because now this variable that, oh, we were not expecting this material to act this way to absorb such much that amount of moisture mm-hmm. or to dry as fast or not be as structural, it becomes a new parameter. Mm-hmm. So it, you have all of these intertwining things to think about while you make it. Um, and it, I think it's great that you mentioned how like we are reclaiming the process of, so of hundreds mm-hmm. of years ago of design through the material. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of what you, you presented when, when we were choosing the electives or mm-hmm. the studios mm-hmm. of the shelf structure mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. McMicillin that you cannot predict the shell. Yeah, you and you can, like in this way of thinking, um, like there is, again, this is a little bit maybe more theory, but there is a, what is called a hylomorphic approach to this kind of material emergence in, in which form is designed in advance and imposed on the material. Like whatever, it's not thinking through the material. It's, there's the idealized form and then you make the material take that form. That's what we usually do, mm-hmm. okay? And then there's the other approach in which, you know, the form emerges through the process of making and with everything that is happening during the process. And uh, so I'm more interested. I mean, there's always like a, like a dialogue between one and the other. It's not either or or. You need to think of, of, of them together. But I'm more interested, I think, in this other approach in which, you know, there's certain things happening and then you think through it and, you know, and work through those. And I think that way of approaching the process also like brings somehow together that mind and the body because when you're working with materials your mind extends on your body so it's not just the brain but it you're thinking with your hands you're thinking with the material so you're extending the mind also to the materials and sometimes you know the environment affects the material like in that mycelium project mm-hmm. it's not just the material but also like how humid the environment like those kinds of things also affect how they became so then you start thinking with all of them and not just like idealized forms or idealized um designs in in your brain yeah so there are actually theories about um cognition 
that focus, that explore, that challenge, this idea that mind is the brain. And then that was the, I would say, the dominant approach to how the, how humans think. Mm-hmm. But also in that uh, cogn- design cognition, uh, also in um, cognitive psychology, actually, not design cognition, cognitive psychology, there are these other approaches for extended mind, for situated mind, an embodied mind um, that are, I think, is by find more relevant to because if you think of the mind outside of the brain, mm-hmm. then why not use that brain or why not use that mind in the design process if we can think like that too? Did I make it too complicated? No, no, no. Okay. It's like the the mind extending as a as also mm-hmm. a tool, but yeah, that you don't only like process it and then finish with it. Done. Yeah. Make represent what you yeah. already thought. No, design. You can think with that, right? Yeah, and so, thinking it doesn't have to be just in the brain, but it is like that that embodied mind or an extended mind to the materials and tools that we can think to. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, with this extension of the mind and all of the variables that can inter- intertwine with how you react to the material. Um, and all of these variables, that is a fun part of like material computing and mm-hmm. and making and deciding what you make. But is this a challenge? How how do you choose which variables to take into account, which variables not to take into account? Yeah. Yes. I think one of the other things I usually talk with my students when we do like a material-based research is we're not material scientists too. Mm-hmm. Like maybe the way that they approach these kinds of processes, like when they design new materials or work with novel materials, is more about like, maybe I would say more goal oriented. But as designers, we are, listen, we, I think, um, this is a difficult thing to explain. Mm-hmm. But as designers, we can see emergent things on the go. Like we are more, we I think we should be more interested in the process. So, for instance, an example that I um, give, like let's say you work with clay, okay, and then some my perception of the emergent futures during the process during the during the let's say working with clay process may be different than yours. Maybe I see let's say cracks on the surface, and I can decide. To, okay, how do those happen? I can question those mm-hmm. and then focus on understanding how they happen and maybe make that part of the design process in a controlled way. Maybe I work with the cracks, but someone else can focus on something else. Okay, so I think it's about seeing and what we see and then how we proceed with what we see to design with is, um, is important. Yes, it is challenging. But I don't think like we're trying to model everything. We're trying to understand what's really happening in all aspects. And I don't think that's necessary. We, not, we should not forget that we are at the end of the day designing with these. With the, the goal is to design with those. So we're not like, um, and we don't have the formation like as material scientists would do or some engineers would work with materials. I think that's important to always remind ourselves because it's easy, way easy. And that happened to me, to my students too. So sometimes when you work with materials and there are multiple parameters, you're trying to understand them. There's, yes, this rigorous and scientific way of approaching the process, but it is not the same way as 
um, a material scientist would do or maybe an engineer would do. Yes, there could be overlaps, but we can see things. And those could be cracks because we like them and we want to design with them. Or it could be a slump on the thing that we decide, okay, let me make 100 slums and see what happens. So, yeah, it's challenging, but it's also like very open-ended, I would call it. So would you say that one of the main challenges or difficulties in Format Lab is that we want to learn so much about the material and, and the process Mm-hmm. That is hard to put a stop of where am I a designer and when am I an engineer? I think, yeah. I mean, I always remind myself and the students that what we are doing, let's define what we're looking at. Let's define what our focus is. Let's define what we're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the challenges. But the, the process usually starts with um, an extensive literature review, reviewing what has been done before, and then trying to depict, even though it's not clearly written, uh, trying to depict what kind of parameters or what kind of variables were those other projects were using. Let's say we had some a master's student of mine, and I also had a, a small research before I started working with her Panis. She did, she was exploring with robotic clay printing and trying to understand how different printing parameters, like those operational parameters during the printing process, result in those emergent behaviors, emergent features on the printed artifacts. Okay? And there, there are there could be multiple parameters. It could be about the clay type you use. It could be about how moist the clay is. It could be about how hot the environment is. It could be about the print speed, extrusion speed, the nozzle size, how, how far is the nozzle from the bed. So multiple parameters mm-hmm. before, during, and after printing with clay printing. So first we start by mapping out all these different parameters by looking at existing, existing studies. And then we make like a map and we identify all these, and then we start exploring, um, um, making material explorations by changing one parameter at a time. So let's change the print speed and see its effects on while we keep all the other parameters constant. And you don't need to do this for all those parameters. We just choose something to begin with. And then, then you start understanding, oh, okay, if I increase the print speed, I'm, I'm giving the clay printing example, this gives me these kinds of lines. And then if I repeat those lines, then it gives me this kind of emergent form. So then you can like try to understand how to generate certain things uh, by thinking with the process and with the material parameters. And those are not necessarily 3D model. The 3D model could be the same, but you can have 100 different outcomes by thinking with those parameters. So I would say, yes, there are too many things to choose from, but at the end of the day, again, we're not like trying to model that um, what's happening materially like completely accurately. We're trying to understand how those, how those, we're trying to think through uh, the process mm-hmm. and identify what can work, what can work for us, so um, we can use it to design something. So this is a little bit off topic, mm-hmm. but now that you mentioned clay, three D printing, and mm-hmm. my and all of these innovative new materials, mm-hmm. and the literature review that is done at the beginning, is that like? difficult is there like sufficient review things to review sufficient research done yeah yeah 
well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Mm-hmm. But as now nowadays, everyone with social media and then every like, especially with the pandemic, all the conferences happened online, so you could attend many of them and get informed about what's going on in the world. I think that was a let's say a silver lining of the pandemic. Well, surprisingly, when you also, I think it's also the tricky thing about research, when you start working on something, you, of course, you follow your, like, um, you, 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 you get, um, like, your vision or what you start to see is all about that, okay? So maybe for someone else who has no knowledge about mycelium, when they hear us saying, Oh, we're doing building stuff. We'll get building materials with mycelium. They could go, wow, like that's amazing. But actually, there are lots of people, lots of research groups around the world that are like doing these parallel at the same time. So, um, and that there is, I mean, it's not still like the whole world is doing, but there are different groups of people working with mycelium. And then uh, there are, again, many different things to explore. So mycelium is a whole other thing because it's also you're making your own material from scratch. So there are also parameters related to making the material, like the fungi type you use, the substrate that you grow on. So there's even more uncertainty in with mycelium. But actually, yeah, there are, like, there's a good community working with that. Same thing for clay printing. In the beginning, when I was first... Uh, when we first did our clay printing experiments, that was back in back when I was still teaching in Turkey. We built in 2016, and we built uh, following. We built an open source 3D printer. Open source means all the fabrication files and the hardware that is used is available openly, so you can just follow the guidelines and build. So, to my knowledge, uh, back then there were like few groups. Who are working on clay printing. And then, you know, this open source availability of these tools made companies also make clay printers, which did not exist. That's why, like, Jonathan, um, Jonathan Keep was a UK ceramist, uh, ceramic artist, that we used his open source clay printer to make ours. And then he collaborated with different people, and they there are now commercially available clay printers. And with those, like, um, people started to have access to clay printers and designers. So they, there's like there, there's there are uh, quite a lot of people working with clay printing too. Yeah. So yeah, it's not like nothing happens. I think in the research world in a bubble, there are connected, uh, and it's good to be connected with them. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a mycology for architecture community that is growing mostly online. Because of the pandemic, there are they're organizing like monthly or biweekly seminars, and, and people who are working with mycelium give talk talks. It's good to be connected, but you know it's good to be aware of what's going on too. It's like you're not the only one. We're not the only one working with these. Right, and this also leads to how does this connection happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, like how does how do you get to know? Right. How does Penn State figure out that someone in Germany is also working with this? Well, because when you're a faculty and in a R1 Research One University, you may have to make publications. Like you do research and then you publish those. So um, those other, like currently my is mostly 
like uh, still experimental, I would say. So people publish, people attend conferences, present their work, and then um, yeah, you get to you need to also to publish. You also need to like do the literature, you do your research on what's been published. So that's how I think you get to know about what's going on around the world and who is working on that. You know. And this leads to the last question of if someone wants to learn more about computational making and design, mm -hmm. um, designing materials, working with them, mm -hmm. where should they begin their literature review? That's like the first step. The first step. Hmm. <laughs> I think that's an interesting question. I think um, to learn about computation, to think about computation, mm -hmm. one book that, I mean, that can help them is Steiny's Shape book. It's Shape um, talking about seeing and doing. The title is that. And the, the author is George Steiny, who's a longtime faculty at MIT Design Computing Program. And it's about, like, it's about shape grammars and the theory behind shape grammars. But it, it will show them that design computing is not necessarily happens with the use of computers and parametric tools, so all those fancy stuff. But it's about how we see and then how we define rules to compute or to calculate. He calls it calculating with shapes, to calculate with what we see. So I think that would be a good start to, you know, think and think and look around the world. I think it's not just a computational theory, but it's also a way of looking around the world with a different lens. So I don't know, I, I think that would be a <laughs> good start. I remember when I was an undergrad, yeah, undergrad back in uh, Middle East Technical University in Ankara. And I, I took a course from Mina Oscar, who then became my master's thesis advisor and PhD advisor. She was a student of George, George Steiny from MIT. She did her PhD with him. And then she was teaching a course on, um, what was the course name? I think computational theories, philosophy and computation. I don't remember the course title, but it was in that course when I was a fourth year undergrad student that I read about that shape, that uh, introduction of the book by George Steiny, that shape book. And I was like, oh my God. I, <laughs> well, to be honest, I also thought this guy is crazy. <laughs> But there was something that that made so much sense to me when I first read it, and yeah, then I used that approach and the theory in my uh, in my research too. And I think that is also how how I approach design computing and, and like the way that you see things. But I, I I approach that also through like in thinking with the materials too. So I think that would be a good start, and then. Um, Uh, let me think what else. So for Penn State students, there's actually a course, Shape Grammars, that they can take. Of, that's an elective course. Uh, previously, Jose, Jose Duarte was offering. Now a new faculty, Heather Ligler, is offering that course. That could be a good course, too. But I would suggest them read the introduction of Shape books. And we have it in the library. Okay, too. great. And if they want to know more about Format Lab, mm -hmm. um, maybe they're interested in researching there. Yeah, uh, we like the structure in the Format Lab is now I'm like this by this semester. I know I have a great team. I'm so lucky. I work with great students 
and have PhD students, three PhD students, um, two master's students. One is an IUG student, an integrative design student. And then I also had undergrads working with us in the past, like you, Kirat. So we have these, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it's heard hierarchical, like I am there and then PhD, then a master's and an undergrads, but it's not how it works. It's very like um, the, organ the organization is very lateral. So I really enjoy working with them because I like that's that refreshes me and then I get stimulated by what they do. And they all have like everyone has different strengths, like some of them. I don't know. I don't want to give examples, but yeah, I, I really enjoy that. So we are open of course, to people who wants to come and work with us. And there is always like some spots in which we can meet, use their help. There are multiple, like two major research lines right now. One is mycelium one, and the other one is adaptive fabrication, like more robotic fabrication and making the fabrication process, the robots see like, uh, and see the environment and respond to the environment so that we can also capture those material indeterminacies during the fabrication process. It's more technical, uh, but we have those another that major research line too. So if anyone's interested, and we are also open to interdisciplinary collaborations. So architecture students are welcome, but other students from other departments are also welcome. Great, perfect. And Thank you so much for joining, Thank you. for being part of the first episode <laughs> of the podcast. And we're really excited to hear more of like your work, the format labs, research, the projects. Mm -hmm. And it was great to hear from you. Yep, you can follow us on Instagram. <laughs> Format.lab on Instagram. And I try to update it regularly. And we, are, we also have a website that is under construction, formatlab.psu.edu. Uh, we're going to hopefully, um, it's going to be updated hopefully soon, maybe in two weeks. And yeah, you can, you can follow us from those. And you can always reach out to me, um, you know, through my email is bug, B-U-G, 61 at psu.edu. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Herat. Thank you for listening. 